This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. On this episode, we're featuring conversations with a pair of young writers whose work is receiving acclaim and attention. Commonweal Managing Editor Kate Lucky speaks with Megan O'Giblin, whose debut essay collection, Interior States, was released in October. And Commonweal contributor Anthony Domestico talks to Emily Ruskovich, whose 2017 debut novel, Idaho, won numerous accolades. We're also featuring a report from Griffin Olenek on the Synod of Young People and the attention being given to the migration crisis. And I speak to Derek Jeffries, author of the recent book, America's Jails, The Search for Human Dignity in the Age of Mass Incarceration. This is the Commonweal Podcast. The 2018 Synod on Young People, the Faith, and Vocational Discernment has recently come to a close. Commonweal Assistant Editor and Garvey Writing Fellow Griffin Olenek was in Rome during the Synod and got to speak with delegates, attendees, and others who were on hand. He has also been writing about the Synod for our website. We spoke recently about some of the things the Church seemed to be trying to accomplish at the Synod, especially in its taking up the issue of the migration crisis in an increasingly xenophobic Europe. Griffin, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I want to ask you to uh, set up for our audience, just talk a little bit about what this particular synod is, when it started, when is it expected to end, and and uh, the kind of structure it follows, and uh, what's really sort of on the agenda and the purpose. Sure. So this year's synod, it's called an ordinary synod, meaning it's not addressing any kind of specific crisis in the church, but it's addressing the issue of young people. So it's a meeting of bishops that is taking place in Rome. It's essentially a long, month-long, almost think of it like a retreat. It's primarily a meeting of bishops. They're aiming to discuss problems facing young people in the Catholic Church today, so the whole world over. Interestingly enough about this synod, there are young people participating directly in Rome. Uh, They're sort of on hand. They can't really vote in the synod, but they're there to make speeches. They're there to participate in formal and informal conversations. Really, the work of the Synod is to kind of articulate what the problems are and also what the solutions might be. It's not entirely clear what those solutions will end up being. At this point, as we're recording this, we're a little over halfway, almost two-thirds of the way through. So synod itself means journey, right, to journey together. So it's sort of, you think of it like a spiritual journey, and that's really, I think, what it is. They're in the process now of articulating not just what the problems are, but what the responses of the Catholic Church might be. Okay, and maybe you could talk about, you know, you talked about solutions that they may be after, uh, but what are the problems? Uh, So the problems are manifold. They range from really simple ones like disaffection with dry liturgy, disaffection with homilies, a sense of not being welcomed, which I think many people can identify with. Not just young people. Not just young people, no. So yeah, the sense of a a general institutional lethargy. But then there are also the more serious ones, drug addictions, uh, people from broken families, people who are growing up kind of without a sense of direction in life, specifically in the West. And then in non-Western countries, the fact that young people as uh, extraordinary vulnerable members of society are subject to uh, violence at greater levels. So Victims of sexual violence, human trafficking, war, poverty, these sorts of things are starting to emerge. So if we, if we 
think of looking for an outcome from a synod? Is that something we should really expect, something sort of concrete and quantifiable? Or what is it that we actually look for in the outcome of a gathering like this? I think in terms of outcome, it'll be, well, let me just say, I don't know. In terms of a concrete, quantifiable, a graspable thing, it's not going to be immediately obvious. And that's partly the way that synods are set up, is they have this long process of gestation. And if you think of the Catholic Church as the bark of Peter or kind of ship, it's really hard to change course. In fact, it's difficult to get concrete policies for a church that's so global. Mm -hmm. So we should be clear, it's not like something that's just a document that's issued and everybody suddenly sort of responds to this document. No, and I think that was that's kind of the, uh, I don't want to call it lazy, but the sort of or, or even cynical presupposition that some people have is that, well, this is really just about another promulgation from Francis. That's not the point at all. In fact, a document could easily be ignored. It's not that it has to be in implemented. So no, it's much more about, I think, uh, empowering uh, national bishops' conferences to uh, feel emboldened that they can pursue new pastoral practices. So that's what you'd be likely to see. So some of these contentions from some people who might be sort of critical or suspicious of the whole the whole process that, the, that they're saying that the the outcome is a sort of a foregone conclusion that that really there's just going to be some sort of uh, stage managed process and some some statement that will be made at the end. But there's not really anything conclusive or, or substantial coming from this. Is is that a valid kind of a reaction to what's happening? To me, that's not very valid. That's certainly not the sense that I got on the ground. Again, it's sort of like saying, well, if you go away on retreat, the the outcome is preordained. That's not true. It means um, it neglects the work that's really taking place there and the genuine excitement that's happening. I got to speak with several synod delegates, one of whom was on the drafting committee, and his work was just beginning. He looked like a person who was deeply excited and enthused about the work that was taking place. And, and really, I mean, not only has he been listening to people in the aula, the, the main hall where everybody meets, but also the small groups, but he was listening to me. I mean, I'm not so young, but I do have, you know, I had thoughts on this and he wanted to know them. Mm. So it's mm -hmm. uh, much more, I think, I think those kinds of opinions, and I think they are opinions, they're more founded in, um, let's call them ideological convictions than uh, evidence. Mm -hmm. You've written a couple pieces for us now, a couple dispatches uh, from Rome. One of the things you talked about was the uh, an innovation in, the, in, in this particular synod in mm. that there was actually the participation of young people. Yes. Uh, how many young people were there and actually taking part in this? And what was really the extent of their participation? Sure. So the, the official participation of young people uh, is somewhere around 30 or 36, and they have the position of auditors in the city hall. So there are roughly, I think, 270, maybe 267 bishops that have voting rights, um, plus a couple of non-bishops. And then the young auditors, they sit as a block in the hall. They get to make interventions just like synod delegates, which are only four minutes long. And they participate in small groups. Um, they're also active on the sidelines. So in terms of um, their participation, you know, I was actually pretty skeptical that they were really being listened to. But my sense is that they have an outsized impact relative to their quantity so there's so few of them, but they're so vocal. And how, how did you pick up on that? I mean, you say they're vocal, but what, what do you really mean when you're saying that? Sure. So um, you get to sort of hear from them at press briefings where one young person will sit with two bishops and then two press secretaries. The remarks that they make are always really articulate, really passionate. Um, but I also got to speak with uh, one of the three U.S. delegates, uh, Jonathan Lewis, who works for the Archdiocese of Washington. And you know, again, this is a person that works for the church. He's, he's 
he's employed by the Archdiocese of Washington, but he was also fiercely critical. And so I, I, I had the sense that, you know, this was really a, a kind of deep engagement. And so just for the, those of us who weren't there on the ground with you, when you say fiercely critical, what did that, what did that look like? I think people were very honest. There, a lot of young people talked about their disaffection with the Catholic Church. And not just, not just disaffection, they really named the critical issues, the sex abuse crisis being the most important, saying this has caused us to lose, if not complete credibility, a lot of credibility with the hierarchy. So to have, again, young people in the hierarchy meeting and expressing to each other, the almost mutual woundedness, uh, I think, is is pretty rare. And did you get a sense of the current crisis? I mean, obviously, for a number of us, this is not the first time we've experienced something like this. In fact, uh, one of our frequent contributors, uh, John McGreevy, has likened the uh, 2002 sex abuse crisis to a certain generation's Vatican II. It mm. sticks out so much for them. Did you get a sense this year in 2018 among a gathering of young people in Rome that, that the crisis was hanging palpably over the over this session? Yes. I think hanging palpably would be a good way to describe it. It was the first thing on everybody's mind. It was something that our delegation from the USCCB raised through Frank Cajano, Bishop of Bridgeport, Connecticut, in the Synod Hall the very first day. And, but I also want to say that it's not simply something that's hanging over us. It's not just a source of powerlessness, but it's actually become, because it's an elephant in the room and it's so heavy, it's something that can be dealt with immediately. So people are just jumping right into it. So it's almost not just that it's hanging over, but people are, are walking through it at the Synod. And that was, I had so many conversations about sex abuse when I was there that were not infuriating or that were not trying to shut off conversation. But in fact, many, uh, well, both bishops and delegates that I spoke to said, well, could you please tell us more, more about what you think and be honest. Hmm. And that, that's Francis's desire for the Synod is that, in fact, the church's main problem is the lack of honesty. So if it could learn honesty by talking about the hardest thing, then it would go a long way towards a more relational, a more positive church. Hmm. A more recent piece of writing, uh, Griffin, that you've done for us, which I think you put together about midway through the Synod, and you, you remarked on a, uh, another difficult issue that, that the, the bishops will be addressing, and that is the migrant crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think you said the Synod was sort of shifting gears and beginning to take up this issue and focus yes. on this. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So the first week of the Synod, uh, a lot of introductory remarks, a lot on sex abuse, as I mentioned. But as you got to the middle of discussions, which follow the um, processes mapped out in the Instrumentum Laboris, the working document, there was this increased attention to young people that suffer various forms of violence. And many of this happening in non-Western, non-highly industrialized countries. And refugees and migrants are paradigmatic of this experience as a whole. So they're um, some of the most vulnerable people, uh, not only because they're young, but because they have no homes, they have no property, and very little relationships. So many bishops uh, were bringing this up. And not just bishops, there was also the superior general of the Jesuits, Arturo Souza, who spoke movingly about this is the other day about the fact that by paying more attention to migrants and refugees, specifically because they're at the margins, that's where the church needs to be. Uh, mm -hmm. It's really indicative of Francis's papacy, uh, where he wants the church to go to go out from itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so those are the people that are, in a way, they're at the center of the periphery. So that's mm -hmm. why they're being talked about. Yeah, of course, we remember uh, in 2013, Francis going out to the peripheries mm -hmm. and sort of uh, almost literally when he visited Lampedusa, where there had been a recent, I think, uh, um, uh, there's a uh, 
multiple deaths of migrants who'd been attempting mm -hmm. to cross the Mediterranean. And I think that was a very inspiring moment for many of us, for many in the world. And it's a sort of a very uh, vivid recollection mm -hmm. that I think a lot of us have. Something's changed in Italy yes. since then, though, hasn't it? It has, yeah. And I picked up on this. I had lived in Italy in 20, 2006 when I studied abroad in Bologna and again in 2015 when I lived in Tuscany. And, you know, there has always been uh, kind of latent, I don't want to call it racism, but let's call it cultural distrust uh, of migrants and refugees in Italy, but nothing like the levels that we're seeing now. In fact, Lampedusa used to be kind of front and center in the Italian consciousness of, of something that the country does right. Uh, it rescues all migrants that come. Those new stories have disappeared. Uh, this was what a, an aid worker with the Centro Stalli, uh, run by the Jef Jesuit Refugee Service in Rome, a refugee resettlement center, told me that, in fact, in the public consciousness now, uh, they do not want to hear the migrant side of the story. They're really just hearing the rhetoric of Matteo Salvini, a politician from the Northern Lega, which pursues formerly the Northern League, formerly the Northern League. Yeah. And now it's just called the League. Right. But their idea is nationalist. And it's it's a bit like Donald Trump, but it's it's got its own differences and because it's Europe, because it's they're, they're much more in the front lines, let's call it, of the refugee crisis because of their close border in the Mediterranean with Africa. Uh, so, yeah, so I noticed a lot of. <laughs> uh, just to call it xenophobia, uh, real fear of the outsider. And, and that's something that the Synod as an international gathering is trying to demonstrate um, a, a different way. Sure. Uh, you know, in your piece too, Griffin, you mentioned an encounter with a, uh, a migrant from Albania. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about her a little and how you came to know her? And also talk, I think you, you, you describe her uh, coming to Italy and sort of her encounters with the Catholic Church in Italy as well. And maybe sure. you could sort of talk sure. about that a bit. Yeah, so her name uh, was Durata, with an H, she told me, which means gift in Albanian. And that's actually a typical name that uh, many, uh, that at least I've, I've worked briefly with refugees in the past, and many were named gift. Uh, but mm. I met her at the Centro Stali, where she now works as an educator, working for a program called Finestre, which means windows. That is, they take former refugees who have integrated into Italian society and they bring them into schools and universities to get to know students, to give them, to, they call it a sensibilizzazione, to, to make Italians more sensitive to the concerns of migrants. When she was seven, her parents emigrated from Albania, fleeing uh, the genocide uh, persecuted by Sloboda Milosevic. About midway through the Adriatic in winter, the smugglers that they had paid to take them to the Italian coast essentially uh, told them that they had to abandon ship. They were cast off into the sea. They were rescued, fortunately, by uh, the Italian Coast Guard. They were brought to Barry in the south, and they moved up to Rome, where she grew up in extreme poverty. And she said the most difficult thing about being a refugee in Rome was, I mean, beyond just the, the outright hostility that she faced, was the fact of seeing her parents reduced to not, almost reduced to children. Mm -hmm. Like they couldn't really take care of her. They couldn't get through the bureaucracy. So she had to do everything. Mm -hmm. She spoke a little bit about her trauma and how she had overcome it and how, you know, after having moved her way through Italian society, which I, I can tell from her firsthand experience as an American in Italy is quite difficult. Mm -hmm. um, people are not very willing to let you be an Italian unless you're an Italian. But she had passed for an Italian. In fact, I mistook her for an Italian. And she suddenly decided after she was working for a few years as a teacher in Rome that she could not remain indifferent 
to mm-hmm. what was going on. She did a volunteer year and then began working at the center. And she's, she had the sense of calm and peace that mm-hmm. kind of radiated from her that, in fact, she loved the work that she was doing despite its difficulty. Mm-hmm. So she's involved in the church, but she had, in a way, both positive and negative things to say. Her family was aided by a priest uh, when they were living in an abandoned shack growing up in Rome. And what she said to me was instructive, that the priest came to them. It's not that they sought out the priest, but that the priest had heard that they were living there and came to offer them food, but also to integrate them into the activities of the parish. So that was her sense with the synod, too. She was interested in what was going on. She had been to see the Pope, but she said, really, you know, they they need to get out of the parish. Enough with these parish parties. Um, (laughs) Enough with parish events. Go out to where people are, the people mm-hmm. that are not Catholic. Mm-hmm. Go and serve them. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of her message for the Synod. And then she just went back to work. <laughs> Incredible. And do we think that same message has been heard by the Synod? Do we think that that's going to be something that comes from this? We talk about outcomes. Will Will they go out as opposed to having people have to come in? I hope that they do. My sense was that at least many of the U.S. bishops are ready to do this. They want to do this. They recognize the predicament that the church is in. They recognize that the church cannot afford to lose an entire generation of young people because there will be no church in the future. Mm -hmm. And I think my sense is that they're ready to begin experimenting. So how do you experiment? You go out and do something different. Griffin is our assistant editor at Commonweal, and he's written a number of pieces about the Synod, which are available on our website. Griffin, thanks for being here. Thank you. Commonweal is the leading independent Catholic journal of public affairs, religion, literature, and the arts. We offer a number of subscription options. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the subscribe link. Megan O'Giblin is the author of Interior States, a new collection of essays on topics like living in what some call flyover country, Christian music, and the concept of hell and how it is marketed to the masses. Her collection is being hailed by writers like Lori Moore and Daphne Merkin, and here, Megan talks about her work with Commonweal Managing Editor Kate Lucky. So I'd love to have you talk about collecting experiences that you've had in this place, inside and outside of this faith, as a writer, a thinker, a reader, what are some of the ideas that you think you're working through in this book? What does the evidence point us towards at the end of the day? I was really forced to contend with the fact that these are obsessions of mine. These two ideas that are contained in the essay collection, faith, my experience growing up as a Christian, and then leaving that tradition And then also what it means to live in the Midwest at this particular moment in history. And the truth is that I do have very ambivalent feelings about both aspects of my life. I have, you know, a lot of mixed feelings about my upbringing in in the church and also about living in the Midwest. It's sort of a love-hate relationship for me. And I think one of the reasons why I wrote about those topics is because of that ambivalence, because I'm trying to work something out. A lot of things in life that I I love with unadulterated love and have very clear feelings about, and I never end up writing about those things because, I don't know, I guess as he's depend on tension of some kind, uh, particularly a personal internal tension. I wrote a piece about my experience listening to Christian contemporary music or CCM when I was growing up. And then I wrote, I think the second essay was the piece I wrote about hell and the role of hell in evangelical theology and how it's been changing. And so, you know, I wrote these essays, you know, within, 
want to say six or seven years after I had, I had left Bible school. And so writing them was really a way to like return to these issues that I felt were unresolved sort of questions that were both personal and having to do with sort of this larger culture that I'd been a part of. I get the sense reading your essays that you are interested in hypocrisy, but also in authenticity. And there's a sense that I get from you that you think that perhaps the church would be served by leaning into the elements of its message that are radically countercultural instead of trying to fall in with the culture and use capitalistic models to bring people in. And I got that sense, especially in reading your essay about exile and thinking about how legitimate the evangelical movement can seem when they're appropriating stories to bring politicians to power and how instead, if they operated outside of those systems of power or said that they didn't need someone in the White House to spread their message or to have strong communities or to live in the country, that perhaps that would be more attractive to people. Um, Can you say a little bit about what you think would be helpful for the church in this moment in regaining some of its legitimacy or the kind of cultural posture you wish it would take that it doesn't take or has had trouble taking? I think a lot of people my age who came up in the evangelical megachurch culture have since really become disillusioned with that. And they identify a lot of them as post-evangelical or ex-evangelical. A lot of them are gravitating more toward mainline churches. And you you see this trend also in the books that are being published right now about Christianity, like the Rod Dreher book, The Benedict Option. He's made this case. And to some extent, you know, others have too in the the church that, that Christians should abandon this whole idea of the culture wars, stop trying to control American politics. That idea is, on one hand, very attractive to me. But the, you know, I read the Dreyer book when I was writing the piece about Mike Pence, talking about how a lot of a lot of evangelicals have sort of started saying similar things, like we need to abandon partisan politics and focus more on preserving our rights as Christians, making sure that we have the right to believe the things that we do in the public square. That is nice that, you know, Christians aren't trying to impose their values on, on the rest of the country. We, I don't, I think we are not really a Christian nation anymore, but at the same time, it seems like it's just another form of politics. I think like it seems as though a lot of Christians have switched from offense to defense. Somebody like Mike Pence, when he talks about freedom of religion. He's talking about Christianity as though it's a form of identity politics. He passed the Restoration of Religious Freedom Act um, in Indiana when he was governor. And um, in the media appearances, he never talked about Christianity as a national ethos. He talked about Christians being able to have the right to refuse to, say, make a cake for a gay wedding or to refuse services when it conflicted with their beliefs. I am happy to see that some Christians are sort of moving away from this idea of political dominance. I don't know that it's necessarily any more benign um, from my point of view, sort of the, the, the retreat ethos that people are talking about today. This essay, Ghost in the Cloud, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about it. So the piece I wrote about transhumanism 
Ghost in the Cloud was about how, you know, a few years after I left Bible school, I became really obsessed with Ray Kurzweil and these other, you know, technologically, I would call them, um, you know, they identify as transhumanists, this idea that humans are going to merge with technology in the future, that our bodies are going to become incorruptible, that we're going to live forever, that we'll be able to resurrect the dead. You know, and these are all sort of people who are arguing what to me, the essay is largely about how I realized that these were essentially Christian ideas, that this was Christian eschatology realized through science. And this is sort of one example of what I see happening in a lot of places where the, the Christian redemptive narrative, like you can't just stop believing in that as a culture and then just sort of, okay, we're all going to hang out now. You know, like people are finding that eschatological hope in other places, either through politics or through science, through technology, you know, this idea that we're still going to achieve utopia and have all of these promises that we've believed in. So I think that the Christian redemption narrative is something that we've you know believed in for centuries and centuries as a culture that's not just going to go away with people leaving religion. I think that you see it increasingly in other places, either through politics, through science, through technology. I think, you know, obviously this is my perspective as somebody who's left the faith and maybe I'm just projecting this onto the culture, but I, I do see it in a lot of different places that this longing for certainty, particularly about the future, is something that people are sort of trying to find through other non-religious avenues. You're also really sympathetic to those urges as well, especially in your essay about Alcoholics Anonymous. That's another essay that grapples with science and belief and how the two things work together and don't and how sometimes storytelling and belief can be more powerful than science. You have another essay as well that comes right before that, A Species of Origins, about the Creation Museum. Can you talk a little bit about those two essays and the interplay in both of them between science and fact and mythos and story? Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of those as connected, but you're right. They do sort of both grapple with science in different ways. I think a lot of these pieces in the in the collection do. The piece about AA started just because I, I there was a period of time in, I think it was around... 2013, 2014, where there were several books that came out within a short period of time, all of which were criticizing 12-step programs, particularly AA. And they all made the same case. It wasn't just that AA was bad for whatever reason. It was specifically because it was unscientific and because they were arguing that addicts and alcoholics needed more evidence-based forms of recovery. These authors are basically arguing that alcoholics needed medication or they were big fans of cognitive behavioral therapy. From the beginning, it seemed like a lot of it had less to do with the fact that AA was not was not effective because it actually has, um, there's a, a lot of evidence that it is effective. I sense that the, the problem with AA was that it was outside of these sort of scientific methods and the fact that it was using spirituality to address something that is a medical issue was really why it was being attacked. I, I read all of these books and um, it, the irony is that like the things that they were advocating in place of AA were just as insubstantial and fluffy as if, if not more so than sort of the spiritual concepts of Alcoholics Anonymous. A lot of science right now is being questions like the, the basic methods of science. You know, there's this problem right now in the social sciences, the replication crisis, where basically Scientists have been unable to replicate some of the landmark studies that have been published over the last several decades. The very methods that we consider so concrete and, um, you know, evidence-based are, are not 
basically what we thought that they, that they were. I write about this, I think, a little bit in the Species of Origins piece about the Creation Museum. A lot of science now, like particularly quantum physics, is going into these areas that, you know, we're forced to contend with the limits of our intelligence as humans and our ability to understand the universe. And a lot of theoretical physics is really just beyond our ability to reckon with, um, with our limited Euclidean brains. So... I think there is a way in which science is increasingly requires some measure of faith or it's just undermining itself in a lot of ways. You mentioned these essays are written over a span of many years, and then you had the task of sort of collecting them and arranging them and putting them together in a book. And what has that process been like for you to see your work arranged and to think about what thoughts lead into other thoughts? why did I choose these subjects? Like, why do I keep writing about these same things? And, you know, as, as I mentioned in the, the preface, it, there is something that's like a little bit perverse about it, or I worry that it is the fact that I keep returning to Christianity. And I, I think there's a lot of writers that had experiences with faith, John Jeremiah Sullivan, you know, Kristen Dombeck, Jordan Kistner, there's all these writers that have had some sort of experience with Christianity growing up, and they write like one essay about it. And then you know, that's it. And it's sort of put to bed and, you know, I'm sure to flex their writing in other ways. The fact that I keep returning and wanting to write about Christianity, it's been like 15 years almost since I've been out of the church. I don't know why that is, why that's something that I'm still wrestling with. But that was really the biggest thing for me in seeing the essays collected because I did, like I said, I didn't set out in any conscious way to write about that topic. It was just something that just kept coming back. Um, and even, I mean, the pieces, there's several pieces in here that are not about Christianity, like the AA piece. There's several pieces about the Midwest. But I think those concerns still keep coming back even when I'm not writing directly about Christianity. Several of the pieces are about science. That's not something I ever thought I was interested in. I was homeschooled when I grew up until 10th grade and had like no science education whatsoever. My understanding of earth science was basically the book of Genesis up until around 10th grade. You know, when I started writing these essays, I identified as an atheist. And I think that's something that softened a little bit. And I don't know how writing fits into that, if that's been part of the process or if writing is just my way of working through it. I think I'm much more agnostic now and I'm much more sort of just ambivalent about religious questions and, you know, what we can rationally know about the universe. But I think that's also sort of the way the culture is going. When I left Christianity, you know, I read a lot of like Richard Dawkins and Chris, Christopher Hitchens and all of these sort of the new atheists were very in vogue then. And, you know, I think that people my age especially are much more and, and younger, I think are much more interested in other forms of spirituality than they were maybe during the Bush years. Thanks so much for so many great questions. Yeah, it was a really, I loved talking to you. Looking to connect with like-minded people to discuss the pressing issues at the intersection of faith and contemporary politics and culture? Check out our Commonweal local communities. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the communities link.
12 million Americans go through the U.S. jail system on an annual basis, detained in facilities where they're often subject to brutal violence or that have deplorable sanitary conditions and that otherwise violate their human dignity. But just what does dignity mean, and what is its place in this age of mass incarceration? That's the subject of Derek Jeffrey's latest book, America's Jails, The Search for Human Dignity in an Age of Mass Incarceration. Derek is a professor of humanities and religion at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and his work has appeared in Commonweal. We should explain at the outset that there's a difference between prison jail and that your book focuses on the latter. Uh, what is the difference, and, and why did you specifically examine dignity in the context of jails? Uh, jails are usually county institutions, and they're for holding people for short term, maybe a year or two, or usually pre-trial detainees. A lot of the people who are in jail have not been convicted. They're legally innocent of a crime. A prison is a state institution or a federal institution, and everybody in the prison has been uh, convicted. So this is an important distinction in uh, the American penal system. And I decided to focus on dignity. I've written in the past about topics like torture and solitary confinement. I've written books on those topics. And dignity is an important moral idiom, particularly in the 20th century, particularly Catholic thought. And I don't feel that we've focused enough of it in, in debates about mass incarcerations. You gave the listeners a sense of uh, what differentiates a jail from a prison. Maybe you could characterize the population of those incarcerated in jails in terms of their offenses, uh, which I guess typically are low level. How's this come about? And is there any idea of the number of people in jails at any given time? Well, we have an enormous jail system in the United States. Anywhere from 11 to 12 million people go through the jails annually. So that's just an incredible number of people. Any given day, there are about 700,000 people incarcerated in jails. I think what you'll find if you go into a jail is you'll find a very large percentage of the population that's pre-trial. So it's 60 to 80 percent, depending on the jail. And a lot of them aren't dangerous. There are people who can't afford the bail that the court has uh, decided they need to pay. So in your book, you take a fairly comprehensive look at jails as proxies for mental health facilities. Uh, what's led to this situation and what are some of the consequences for the mentally ill who find themselves jailed? Well, I think a lot of uh, people attribute this to what they call deinstitutionalization, that is the closing of our large mental institutions. And once we got rid of the um, mental institutions, some of these people had nowhere to go. Once we started building up prisons and jails in the 1980s and 90s, the jail then became a place for people who have last resort. And the picture isn't a pretty one. I think most people would agree that we have a crisis. Uh, sheriffs that I talk to talk about this all the time because a jail is not a place for someone with mental illness. People often don't get their medication. They can wait sometimes up to a week to get their medication. Sometimes they don't get any medication. And they are often taken advantage of by other inmates. They're often confused. And this leads some people, sadly, to commit suicide. There's a pretty high rate of suicide among people in our, our jail system. So this is really a crisis, a major crisis. And it's one of the messages of this book that we need to do something about this. Would you say the uh, crisis extends to the situation now in terms of how jails have become holding centers for undocumented immigrants often, some of whom are seeking asylum? What are the unique situations that these detainees face? Well, this started in the Obama administration, deported a lot of people. And 
What occurred in the Obama administration is these private prison companies began to build jails. I would call them jails because they're temporary holding uh, cells. How to classify them is a little bit complex, but they do serve the functions of jails. And now under the Trump administration, this has become huge. I mean, extraordinary numbers of people incarcerated in uh, these places. And for the inmates in, in these private prisons, things are particularly bad because they don't have a lot of rights. They don't have any recourse. If something terrible happens, they can't uh, protest. They're afraid of protesting. And the conditions in these jails are really bad. The sanitary conditions, I feature one of these jails in my book, and the sanitary conditions are just unimaginable. The, this is a real disaster. This is in some ways the next um, affront in thinking about uh, the jail system, I think. You know, in addition, I think to some of these uh, the conditions in terms of the physical surroundings, vulnerability to sexual abuse, you, you, you do spend time in your book talking about jails sometimes being used for really revenue generating purposes, uh, you know, to the extent that some municipal facilities are accepting inmates from other municipalities, but even the inmates themselves as individual people are used, you know, in terms of, you know, I think of having fees and fines levied upon them, for example. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. And I'll give you a couple of examples of this. I mean, it's all over the country. I teach uh, religion and philosophy to um, inmates. And here in Wisconsin, we can charge, some jails charge inmates $20 a day. And so if they're there for a very long time, when they get out, even if they're not convicted, when they get out of the jail, they're presented with a bill. And a lot of, a lot of people are just too poor to pay, pay that. And it really destroys their credit uh, rating. So that's just their per diem charge. But then all kinds of other things, um, DNA testing, um, lawyers' fees, uh, all kinds of things like that. And as you said, some municipalities in the book, I talk about uh, uh, Ferguson, which everybody knows about. But in Ferguson, one of the reasons there were riots there is because people were treated this way. They were arrested and uh, charged and then released and arrested and charged. And the federal government came out with a, a study describing how Ferguson raised money in this fashion. And this is not uncommon. We have this problem in Wisconsin. Uh, the inmates will uh, be sent out to another jail. And the other jail, if it doesn't have that many inmates, will accept them and charge the other county for housing. Right. Can you talk about how we think of the concept of dignity in these contexts? As you yourself put the question in your book, why should we believe that jail inmates have dignity at all? Yes, the kind of dignity I'm talking about, and it's very important in Catholic thought, papal encyclicals, many other uh, documents, is what's called inherent dignity. And that means that uh, a person has value. And that value is not something they're given to them by others, their parents, society. They retain that value, value simply because they're a person. Philosophers use this phrase, qua person. That is a very important kind of dignity. It's not the only kind of dignity, as I pointed out in the book. But it's a kind of dignity that became very important in the 20th century. And some people don't like it. Some people reject it. I, I discuss some of those people in the book. But I think it's really important when you're talking about a penal system to think about inherent dignity. So what this means is that people uh, can't uh, lose that dignity, even if they commit a terrible crime. They still have this value. And what's also important to me, particularly because I teach inmates and have been doing so for a long time, is that people often feel like they've lost their dignity. And it's a very painful 
thing for somebody who's, uh, we have a maximum security prison here in Green Bay, and we have a lot of young men who go into that prison at 20, 22, and face a life without the possibility of parole. And these people feel like they have lost all their vic- uh, dignity. If you believe in inherent dignity, uh, that can't be the case either. They can't lose it. They can't do something to lose it. So that's the kind of view of dignity that uh, I'm defending in this book. Sometimes we also talk about dignity in terms of the jailers themselves. Is that something that people should think about too? Definitely. Uh, and I really should say here, I make this point in the book, I'm not intending to, do, uh, to uh, demonize corrections officers. I've seen and talked to people who have done some pretty awful things to inmates, a good amount, not a great deal, but a good amount of staff violence in our penal system, and people just don't pay attention to it. But I'm not intending to demonize the officers at all. And I have spent a, a good amount of time. I worship in a in a, in the chapel at our maximum security prison, and I spent a good amount of time with the officers there. And yes, um, they often they also have to worry about their view of the world, their sense of, of value. And working in a prison can take a serious toll on some of these people. So I do think that's an important factor to consider as well. I don't talk about it as much in the book, but that's something that I, I'm, I'm quite concerned about. I want to read you a quote from the book now, and I'll, I'll ask you to speak to it. Mass incarceration is a moral scandal, you write, but responding to it requires more than outrage and assertions about injustice. Instead, we need careful analysis of ideas of justice, dignity, and human rights that have always been a matter of dispute. Can you explain what this analysis might constitute or or how it could be carried out? We're getting a lot of good work from historians, particularly younger historians, about mass incarceration. There, there, uh, Heather Ann Thompson, who wrote this fine book on, on Attica, uh, she's not that not a younger scholar, but she has a number of students who are writing really good stuff. Uh, I'm a philosopher, and this is an interdisciplinary book. What I find with some of these historians is that they don't interrogate these questions about what exactly are human rights? Why do we have them? What exactly is dignity? And these are very controversial topics in political philosophy and philosophy in general. And so I'd like to see a richer account of, of these. Why is it so bad that we have, we have 2.2 million people incarcerated in our country and millions under parole? In this book, the main topic is dignity. But human rights would be another thing to think about. What exactly are they? What kind of beings have rights? Um, There's a lot of discussion about this in political philosophy. So I think the mass incarceration discussion could be enhanced, could be enriched uh, if we think about these topics uh, a little more deeply. What are the obstacles to improving conditions of jails? Are, are there are there long-term solutions, or do you see only main short-term responses to what's essentially an emergency situation? Well, I try to do a couple things in this book. There is an emergency situation, and I don't think the uh, uh, we should allow larger goals to get in the way of trying to simply help people. The, the, we discussed earlier the problem of mental illness. We have to, we have to stop uh, staff violence. We have to improve uh, medical care. These are things that we can do right now, and uh, I think it's important. So there are some short-term things, remedies that we can do uh, immediately. But at the end of the book, I wanted to step back and ask, but what is the ultimate goal of, of all this? 
And I think you find two schools of thought. You find people who say they're in favor of criminal justice reform. And what they mean usually is to make the jails clean and, and fair and get rid of some of the problems, reduce the population, and keep the public safe. So that's one goal is uh, those people. And then there's a more radical uh, wing that says, no, the jail is a failed institution. And we need to record, we, of course, we need to stop some people from committing violence against others. That's important. But the jail has never been a good institution, and it's very unlikely that we're going to be able to um, uh, change that. And I didn't know where I stood on this, to be honest, Dominic, but I, um, when you write a book, you receive readers, it's a very, uh, particularly at university presses. And I had a very good reader. Sometimes the readers aren't good. Sometimes they are. But I had a very good reader uh, who was, a, I believe, was a criminologist, a very good criminologist. And this person really pushed me. And he said, you got to take a stance. I wrote a book on solitary confinement. And so I spent a lot of time writing about these things. And he really pushed me and said, you kind of seem like somebody in the second camp. And he was right. So at the end of the book, I take the stand. It's kind of a more radical stance by saying that the jail is just a failed institution. Thank you for being here. And I do recommend the book to those who are listening. It's, it's well-researched, well-written, and uh, very thoughtful. Uh, Derek, thank you for being here. Dominic, thank you so much. The Commonweal Podcast is supported in part by the generosity of Commonweal's associates. To become part of this giving tradition, log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the donate link. Emily Ruskovich's debut novel, Idaho, received wide acclaim in 2017. It was named a New York Times Editor's Choice, and it also got the Idaho Book Award of the Year. It was also shortlisted as a finalist for the International Dylan Thomas Prize. Emily recently spoke with Commonweal contributor Anthony Domestico, whose review of Idaho also appeared on our website in September. Well, Emily, thanks so much for being with us today. I thought that we might start by talking a little bit about your home state. So your debut novel is titled Idaho. Uh, You grew up in Idaho. The novel Idaho itself is set in Idaho, and you now teach and live in Idaho. And so I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what Idaho has meant for you personally and biographically, and what has drawn you to it, what continues to draw you to it imaginatively. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I've always lived in Idaho, but when I was 12 years old, my family moved up to a mountain, a very remote mountain. There was no electricity, no running water. And we lived in tents on this mountain while my parents built the barn. And then when the barn was finished, we moved into the barn and lived there for a while with all of our animals. And then while while our house was being built. And so it was one of the most amazing times in my life to just to be so far removed from everything except the people that I loved most in the world. And it was beautiful and strange and also dangerous. And so I have a relationship with Idaho that is really complicated. I absolutely love it because of its strangeness and because it, you know, living in a, in such a beautiful place that was sort of surrounded by poison 
was so interesting. And I just, I would see things in the woods that I never really understood. Strange people and strange objects that I would find out there. And it just, I feel like if my parents hadn't given me the gift of that mountain experience, I would never have been able to write this book. I'm really grateful for the way it it affected my imagination. Yeah. When you say strangeness, so you mean both a kind of natural strangeness because the, the novel really beautifully talks about the various sublime aspects of the Idaho landscape, both the plains and the mountains. But I take it you also mean kind of human strangeness, right? The strangeness of the community that you found yourself within. There, there were some really wonderful people that we knew on the mountain too. The, uh, there were knife makers who lived up at the very top of the mountain, um, which is a strange thing to do with your life. But they, you know, they were wonderfully kind people and they too were just surrounded by yeah, human strangeness. You know, I, I remember one time I was out on a walk and, you know, you never saw anybody ever when you were out on walks, except these very rare occasions. And one time I just saw this man and this young woman, and they were searching frantically for something. And I just had this terrible feeling. And I thought, I've got to, I've got to get out of here. And I know, I don't know what they were searching for or if they ever found it, but there was like a desperation there. Um, well, I, I guess I could just go on and on with anecdotes of strangeness, but overall, it was it was an eerie, eerie and beautiful place to live, and I'm really drawn to that. I think the novel has been out for almost two years now, so I think the statute of limitations on spoilers has expired. So I'm going to mention some things that actually happen in the novel. The novel, in in large part. Um, kind of grows out of an unthinkable and in certain ways an unrepresentable act. So a mother named Jenny has been living a difficult but largely happy life with her two daughters, May and June, and her husband, you mentioned that you knew a, a, a knife maker, the, the main male character in the novel, Wade is himself a knife maker, and they've been living in the mountains of Idaho. And then one day, um, kind of unexpectedly and unexplainably, Jenny kills her daughter, May, with an axe, and her other daughter, June, runs away. And this is, in every sense of the word, a gratuitous act. Jenny's a good mother. She loves her daughters. She loves Wade. And even in the context of senseless acts of violence, this seems particularly senseless. And by that, I mean kind of resistant to sense, mysterious or even unknowable. And I guess my, my question is kind of twofold. So, First of all, the kind of obvious question, what drew you to putting this act of horrific and kind of unfathomable violence at the very center of your novel? What kinds of questions, whether they're moral questions or kind of representational questions, did it allow you to think through and, and make alive? And then, so that's the kind of positive question, why choose to write about this? And then the negative question would be, what were you worried about in, in making that choice? So what dangers in terms of craft or, or otherwise did making this act the center of your novel introduce for you? That's a, that's a wonderful question. I, I do think, though, that it, to call it a choice is not quite right. I've answered this question in various ways before, but when I was um, when the novel first came to me, it really was, I, I, I was out in the woods on a different mountain than my own. And I, I was gathering firewood with my family. And I had the sense that this place where we were, uh, it's a place I can't get to again. I don't even know where it was. Um, but I, I felt this place 
inhabit me. And I just felt something terrible happened here. And it's a feeling that I've never actually had again, you know, of um, not being haunted exactly. It, It was different than just being haunted by a place. It was what happened here. And so I was the the act of trying to figure out what that was, was the process of writing the novel. And so it, it was never like I decided I'm going to write a novel about a mother who kills her child. That seems it, it, it's a decision that was not really a decision. It was very separate of me. Um, and it's not something that I, I don't think I would have ever chosen to do, except that it, it just happened. But you know, I think part of the reason that that's, that's the answer that I found, which, you know, of what happened here is because I've, I guess, uh, I've had this feeling most of my life at various points in my life, it's been a lot stronger of how do I know that I'm a good person? How do I know that I won't do something that will ruin my life? How do I know that I won't do something that will ruin somebody else's life? And when that occurs to me that we all have this agency, it's really terrifying. It's it's paralyzing to me, you know, that you could, we all could do something completely outside of ourselves, something unthinkable, something terrible. And it's, it's the worst <laughs> feeling and realization. And, you know, it, I've, I've really struggled with it at various points in my life. For a while, it was even a point of obsession is how how do I know I'm not going to hurt somebody? Like I've never hurt somebody before. And I'm I want to be a good person. And I want so badly to be a good person. But how do I know that I'll never hurt someone? And so for Jenny, to do something completely outside of herself, without reason, it's the scariest thing I I can imagine it's, it's, it's the worst thing that I can imagine. And from that point of the worst thing that I can imagine, I wondered if I could find some kind of redemption. And I did, I found that this woman who's capable of murder of murder, she does not understand. She's able to find friendship at some point, you know, when you think this person's life is over, there's no recovering from this act of evil. And she thinks that as well. Not, not she, just we the yes. readers, but she thinks that's her, herself. Yeah. Yeah. And she wants to die. She she wishes she could be sentenced to death because she thinks that her her life is, is over. And then for kindness to still be possible after that moment, that gives me a lot of hope. And, you know, I think that it is I don't think my novel is for everybody. I think it's there is a darkness in the novel that is it's really hard. There's there's passages that I I will never ever read out loud because I couldn't they they're too, they're too painful and it was not a fun book to write in in that sense it's it's very you know at the heart of it is a is a, a murdered child and it's it's awful and it it was really painful to write it but ultimately I do feel very strongly that it's a love story and it's a story about the good things that we're capable of more than the bad things that we're capable of. And it's about love between husband and wife and sister and sister and even mother and child. So I think that that's, you know, that's a a fear that I had putting the book out into the world is, wow, Emily is a very dark person. And I'm really, <laughs> I'm really not. There's, you yeah. know, there's darkness in me like there is in anybody, but I really do believe in human kindness and compassion and salvation of that you're capable of being redeemed by by kindness 
Okay, so then I thought we might think a little bit about structure because, as I as I mentioned, there's almost this black hole at the very center of the novel. This thing that can't be represented. That all of the characters, in various ways, are both trying to think about and not think about. You you decided upon this or found this really interesting of temporally jumbled structure in which you move back and forth in time quite consistently and and quite dramatically. So we spend some time with Jenny and Wade during their courtship and their early marriage. Uh, We spend time with Wade and Anne, the woman he marries after Jenny goes to prison. We spend time with Jenny in prison, but none of it's structured chronologically. And it jumps backwards and forward and flashes in a way that, to me, resembled Alice Monroe, who I know is a writer uh, who's very important to you, that kind of dilation of time, that jumping forward in time and then jumping back in time. And I'm just wondering how you came upon that structure. Was there ever a moment in which you thought you were going to tell a more kind of clearly linear sequential Story, or, or was there something about the very trauma at the the heart of the novel that necessitated this kind of circling around it from various temporal vantage points? Yeah, it, it's the last thing. It's it's that there it it was necessary because I never I never wanted to, but I also never was capable of actually writing the moment of May's death of the murder, and part of that is that I. I feel like, you know, like if I were to access Jenny's perspective, which I do about other things, that what happened was so far beyond herself and so awful. I just don't believe that memory could return to it in a, in a real way. And I felt like any, any attempt to actually be there would be not kind to the reader and also not real, like completely not real. And so I was very devoted to just letting it be. I also, I wanted to structure the book kind of in the way that I feel that memory works, which is very much influenced, as you said, by Alice Monroe, which is that, like, you know, when I think of my own life, I think of how much I, I've forgotten, but within how much I've forgotten, there's these little islands of like perfectly pristine memories, kind of outside of context. I might not know how old I am in this moment or what's going on in my larger life, but this moment is crystal clear to me. And so Wade is losing his memories to early onset dementia. And, and yet there are things that if, even if he forgets the most important things in his life, you know, like he forgets that he had daughters at at a certain point, he, he still doesn't forget maybe a moment he had with his, his dog, you know, some moment that's not, not at all as important, but is, given the same kind of importance because it's preserved. He he remembers this girl from his past, this neighbor girl, and she becomes, you know, the delusion of a um of a daughter. And so I, I wanted to write in in sort of a way that that mimics the way that I understand memory to work. Yeah. And, and so how long did you work on this novel for? About often on well, at the start, I thought it was a short story. So I, I wrote the first chapter thinking it was a long, short story. And then there was a period of time after I wrote it in which I was working on other things. So, But uh, for about five years, 
I was working on it intensely. And then there was a little bit of a, of a sixth year in which I wrote that first chapter. Emily, thanks again so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having me. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate publisher Megan Ritchie and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.